Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, we're looking into police use of force after some very concerning incidents, including the tasering of a 95-year-old great-grandmother, the shooting of a man armed with kitchen knives in his driveway, and a police assault on a First Nations teenager in a Sydney park. Mental health is not a crime. Dementia is not a crime. And yet these people are dying as though they were common criminals. So we're going to hear from a mother whose daughter was shot dead in a Hungry Jack's car park and a criminologist who's worried the police force in Australia is being militarised. Katrina Blouse will bring you that briefing right after the headlines. Tom Tilly with you for those. Joined by Jan Fran. It is Thursday the 8th of June. G'day, Tom. I know you've been watching this uh, court case closely here. Prince Harry has finished giving his second day of evidence uh, in his phone hacking trial. He spent almost eight hours under cross-examination. He became a bit emotional. He sort of Mm. fought back tears for a while there. He told the court that the trial has, quote-unquote, been a lot And he also claimed that his phone uh, may have been hacked daily for 15 years. Obviously, this is something that's very personal for him. You know, he told the court that the reason that he was taking this legal action in the first place is to protect his wife, Meghan Markle. The Mirror newspapers, though, here have denied or rather they've not admitted to any of the claims. Yeah, I mean, this is basically what he wrote his book about. He said it's the fight of his life is stopping these dodgy media practices. He talked about his time in Australia being, you know, really painful because of the media intrusion that, you know, he even had cameras just turning up on a deserted beach in Noosa. So it's a lot of what he wrote his book about, except in the court, he's being cross-examined by the other side. So there were some pretty tough questions he had to face in the stand too, which is why I think he said the whole thing has been a lot and also very public and the first time a senior royal has been in the stand for over 100 years. Yeah. And there's controversy brewing over the multi-million dollar compensation payout to Brittany Higgins. So Senator Linda Reynolds has slammed the legal process which led to the payment from the Commonwealth, which is reported to be in the 2 to $3 million range. Reynolds is planning to report it to the National Anti-Corruption Commission. Um, that's that new federal ICAC body. She says there are serious issues with the swift way the claim was settled straight after the Albanese government came to power. Yeah, this is um, regarding a personal injury claim by Brittany Higgins. Now, she's, of course, the former Liberal staffer who was employed by Linda Reynolds, who was the then Defence Industry Minister. She was employed at the time that Higgins alleges she was raped by fellow staffer Bruce Learman in the Senator's Parliament House office. Mm. Now, we should say Learman was charged. He vehemently denies the allegations. He's also maintained his innocence, just claiming that it simply didn't happen. So that's that's the background there, obviously. Yeah, it's getting very messy, this fight. There are you know, new reports in the Australian newspaper today detailing more of the text messages between Brittany Higgins and her partner, David Shiraz, about the Labor MPs they are reaching out to. Now, those um, Labor MPs were in opposition at the time and then they came to government and that's when this payout happened. So that's part of the the issue that Linda Reynolds is, is raising here. Yeah, the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, has said that the government has managed this settlement, you know, to quote him, by the letter of the law, which is sort of suggesting there's nothing to see here. Everything was done um, above board. But, uh, yeah, 
some, some, some questions. And I know this one, I don't, I don't love bringing you these stories. We don't love bringing you these stories. Some new figures showing a dire level of economic growth in Australia. These figures are released by the Bureau of Statistics. They show the Australian economy grew 0.2 of a percent in the three months to March. Uh, what that means, to put it in some context, it's the slowest growth since September 2021. And if you cast your memory back to September 2021, it was the peak of the pandemic. Now, these figures show that the annual rate of growth is 2.3%. That is down from 2.7% at the end of 2022. The reason why that's significant is because some economists are predicting possible recession on the cards, Tom. Yeah, well, we're pretty close to it. If we're at 0.2% over the quarter, times that by four, and you get an annual growth rate of 0.8%. So very close. We've got record immigration, which shows that basically if we, if we didn't have more people coming into the country creating economic growth, we'd be going backwards. We're going backwards um, GDP per person. So yes, we're basically flatlining. Mm. Philip Lowe, who is the governor of the Reserve Bank, obviously interest rates have been, you know, a, a major issue here in the last year. Slightly funny story that piqued my attention yesterday. Uh, he gave a speech at a conference yesterday after raising rates for the 12th time. Hmm. Uh, and I think he walked out to this really upbeat song. I don't know if you know it, Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop oh, yeah. the Feeling. You know, it's sort of like positive, up he goes onto the stage. Uh, I think he was called out over that. It's like, mm, is that really the vibe there for you, Phil? You couldn't couldn't have chosen another song? Maybe, um, you know, Everybody Hurts from R.E.M. I think would have been a slightly more suitable option. I love it. It's the, it really shows the people blaming Philip Lowe for everything, including the music choices. <laughs> <laughs> And there's some wild golf news, seriously. So a merger deal has been announced between the PGA Tour, the European Tour, and the Saudi-backed Live. So the Live is the controversial new competition. We've talked about it here on The Briefing. It took some of the world's best players, including Australia's Cameron Smith, and it was derided by many as being very unethical because it was funded by Saudi money, which people call oil and blood money. But now the PGA, who has been... Um, very damning of the live over the last year or two is ready to join forces with them and they're dropping their lawsuits. So this is the PGA Tour Commissioner, Jay Monaghan, who fronted the players yesterday in a meeting. At times it was an intense, uh, an intense meeting and, you know, I, I tried to address uh, what this means for them and ultimately it's a great day for the game. Yeah, so... Um, you know, some of the live players said it was an awesome day, but some of the PGA Tour players weren't happy. Um, they said they found oh. out on on Twitter, which is not well. That's really just how another element. Exactly, this story is is just there's so much madness to it, and that's just one element of it. That you know, former PGA Mackenzie Hughes, who won the PGA twice in the past said that he, he found out on Twitter that this was happening and he wrote, oh, nothing like finding out on Twitter that we're merging with a tour that we'd said we'd never do that with. So obviously something's gone on in the background where key people have, um, it's either happened particularly quickly or in some measure of secret where key people were just not told the facts before the public was basically. Weird. Well, the other element is that Greg Norman, who's meant to be the boss of Liv, um, also wasn't 
involved in the merger negotiations. So it was um, one of the big Saudi guys behind the live who was dealing with the PGA. So he's been uh, a little bit left in the dark as well. And people who display or trade the Nazi symbol will face up to 12 months in jail. Uh, This is under new proposed federal laws. So the Attorney General is going to introduce a bill next week. Uh, He says he wants it passed by the end of the year. He has, however, stopped short of uh, banning the Nazi salute per se. Um, That's in line with Victoria and Tassie. Uh, He's leaving it essentially up to each state to decide whether or not to do that. Okay, so this ban will include the use of the symbol on flags, armbands, T-shirts, website, a whole range of uses. Yeah, it doesn't extend to other swastikas, though, which do exist um, in Hinduism, for example. That's a shape that has a particular significance. So that can still be traded and bought and displayed. And also swastikas for sort of academic or, you know, educational or artistic reasons are also fine. So there's, there's, there's some caveats. All right, we'll catch you later. Katrina's up next as we look at the use of police force in Australia. Lately, there's been a worrying rise in the number of police-related deaths and serious use of force. Just in the last couple of months, we've had the tasering that led to the death of 95-year-old Claire Nowland. Then there was the shooting of Stephen Pampalian, who was killed in the driveway of his Sydney home. Both were armed with knives. Claire was suffering from dementia. Stephen also had serious mental health issues. And a few weeks ago, a police officer was found guilty of assaulting a First Nations teenager in a Sydney park in a video that went viral. Now, hearing about these cases is a nightmare for Lisa Topic, whose 22-year-old daughter, Courtney, was shot dead eight years ago by police in the car park of a Hungry Jack's. She was also armed with a kitchen knife. She also had serious undiagnosed mental health issues. These cases have all prompted investigations and calls for a change to training. And in a sec, we're going to hear from a criminologist who's worried about the shift that happened during the pandemic that went from community-focused policing to what he says is a more force-orientated model. But first, let's hear Lisa's story. Lisa Topic, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. What happened the day Courtney died? It was an ordinary day. Bit, bit like today, you never know what's around the corner. We went to work, my husband and I, um, our sons went and did their usual thing. Um, Courtney was at home. It was a day she didn't work. Um, she had worked the previous evening at Woolworths. She'd been working there for many years. It was an ordinary day. And then around two o'clock in the afternoon, I heard in the staff room some of the young teachers saying that a young girl had been shot dead at Hungry Jack's. And I remember thinking, how awful how close to home, how sad, totally, yeah, oblivious to that it was us, it was Courtney. She didn't go out alone. Um, She worked at Woolworths, which was two streets away from where we live, and Courtney would walk up and she'd have her head down and wouldn't interact with people. The only time she'd go out was with me or with her brothers. So, look, that afternoon, um, about 10 to 3, quarter to 3, my name was called over the the loudspeaker at school, as well as my principal at the time, um, to come to the office urgently. And I still wasn't thinking Courtney at that point. I was just thinking, oh, my God, what, what's going on? What Went to the office and there were detectives there and they, they told me 
that Courtney was dead, that she'd been shot dead um, by New South Wales police. And I just remember collapsing and not, it didn't make sense. And then I just went into mother mode. How, how do, what do I do? Who do I, how do I sort my, you know, the family out, mum and dad, my boys, my husband, what, what can I do? And it just seems so far removed from Courtney, from us, from everything. And yet here we are um, trying hard to live our life and go forward and to prevent any other family having to live this lifelong nightmare. Um, you know, we have to get up and go to work and do our usual daily tasks. Um, and we do them in honour and memory of Courtney, um, who didn't deserve to die such a senseless and violent death at the hands of those that are supposed to help her. Our children were brought up to, you know, if you need help, you go to the police. And yet here's, you know, this kind, gentle soul who did have mental health issues, absolutely, but she did not deserve to die within 41 seconds of the police arriving such a violent death. Um, I guess there's been so many same, same, but different, you know, scenarios of people sadly losing their lives unnecessarily. Um, you know, this has got to change. The police need the correct training for the correct situation. It's not a one size fits all. Mental health is not a crime. Dementia is not a crime. And yet these people are dying as though they were common criminals at the hands of those that are supposed to help. Nobody made them judge, jury and executioner. Some people have said, I oh, eight years on, you must be okay by now. We'll never be okay. She shouldn't have died like she did. And if we can do anything, and we would love a meeting with the police current police commissioner to discuss going forward um, in terms of making a difference to mental health training for frontline officers if they don't have the correct training, how can they be expected to act appropriately? And by working with the police and going forward and changing the training to better encompass um, different situations, but we've got to try to make it less deadly to those that are suffering mental health issues, dementia, and us, the families, are left to get up each day and do what we can to make a difference. And that's why, that's why we do this. So Lisa, I'm sure you've spent so many hours reflecting on what could have happened differently and what can be done differently when it comes to police training. Where do you think the holes are? The issue of mental health has become, is growing exponentially and especially around our young people. I work in a school, I see it firsthand. More and more of the police's call out and interactions with the public relate to mental health. Now, mental health on its own is not, not criminal. So they need to be better equipped and better trained to understand and to recognise where this person is suffering in a mental health psychosis or a mental health issue. We need to change, I guess, the the, the culture, if you like, um, that everybody that the police come in contact with are not criminals. With us doing, you know, helping with training and that, it helps the police too. We're not here to beat the police. We never have been. Like I said, I've got a lot of friends that, police, uh, that are police officers. But what we need to do or what we want to do is to make change, positive change, so that other families don't have to live this, you know, this never-ending nightmare, basically. That was Lisa Topic. Now let's bring in Terry Goldsworthy, who's an Associate Professor in Criminology at Bond University. Terry Goldsworthy, thank you so much for joining us. First up, I'm going to ask you, 
Is it the fact that it's been in the media, that it's on our minds, or has there actually been an increase statistically in police use of force? When you're talking about use of force, there's a whole range of use of force options that police can use. So, I mean, uh, what we know about firearms is that there was a, a surge, I guess you could say, about two years ago where it uh, rose up quite sharply, the numbers in Australia. So if you take the timeline trend over a number of years, what we've seen is a very slight rise in the number of shootings in Australia, and it averages somewhere around about five fatal police shootings in Australia per year. So, you know, I guess people, uh, they see the police shootings on TV, they feature heavily in the media, and uh, because now we can all record and capture events with our phones, et cetera, there's probably more exposure to it. Yeah, and I guess too, often media gets body-worn camera footage released under um, freedom of information, don't they? Well, that's right. You know, the police are also capturing the moment, um, and that's uh, a good thing because it uh, provides accountability and transparency. And, uh, you know, it's good for the public to see that footage there, but it's also good for the police because it provides excellent evidence. So in some circumstances where they're not worn or they're not activated, it is disappointing to see that occur because uh, a picture's worth a thousand words when it comes to a dispute as to what happened if someone has suffered serious injury or uh, ultimately being killed by the police in their interaction. When things do go wrong, do you think the investigations process is adequate? The public often has an issue when it is an internal investigation, for example, police investigating other police. Every jurisdiction has a different setup, but uh, primarily what you usually see where there's a, what we call a critical incident. So there's a death or serious injury of a police officer or someone from the public as a result of an interaction with the police. So it could be through discharging a firearm or police officers' use of force in defensive equipment, you know, things like cap spray or uh, a taser. In Queensland, we have the Crime and Corruption Commission. They oversee any uh, of those issues where there's a death in uh, police custody as it's defined. And New South Wales has the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission, which overviews and monitors critical incidents. So they'll go out to the scene, look at the crime scene, they'll look at recordings of interviews, they'll observe the interviews conducted by police officers with other police uh, and look at the brief of evidence as such and make sure it's fully conducted and conducted in a proper way. All of those use of force reports are examined by, uh, you know, local committees. The police would look at the use of force and make sure it was appropriate. Um, so they do capture the data internally. What we don't see is that data being made available publicly. Perhaps the police services could uh, consider opening up their use of force reporting and making that more um, appropriate. Now, during the pandemic, you wrote an opinion piece and you said there's little doubt Australian police forces are weaponising in the same way as police in the United States have done in recent years and the rise of the warrior copy is well documented. You also raised some concerns that there was a move away from community engagement to a more force-orientated model of policing. Do you still believe that's the case? Yeah, look, I think there has been. I mean, uh, back in 2014, I think, or 16, we had a spate of four shootings uh, in Queensland and uh, mental health featured prominently in those shootings. The commissioner at the time, Ian Stewart, made the comment and there was a review done of those shootings by the police internally and they released the report and it talked about moving from an escalation mentality to a de-escalation mentality. And one way to do that is by engaging with the community and seeing, you know, that the community and the police need to form these partnerships rather than it being, uh, we're here to police the community. 
if you look at uh, militarisation of the police, I mean, we've seen a move away, if you look at just the, you know, the visual aspects, we've seen a move away from the trousers and blue shirt to now uh, when I see police down the street when I'm having a coffee, they're in the dark blue uh, polo shirts to tactical pants. Most of them were wearing thigh holsters, which when I was in the police was only allowed for specialist units, but they're almost all of them uh, in uniform are wearing those now. We've now had them issue the uh, load-bearing uh, ballistic vests up here in Queensland on, as a result of the shootings at Christmas time with the three police officers, two of them fatally. And so they do look very militarised. I mean, uh, they look like... The, you know, if you put them in camouflage, that looks very similar to defence uh, force personnel. And I think that can be intimidating for certain as, uh, members of society, certain groups in society, when they see a police officer turn up looking like that, they're very intimidated by that look. And I do question, you know, why we have seen this increase in this militarised capacity uh, and justification for it. That was Associate Professor Terry Goldsworthy and... He mentioned quite a few times there de-escalation training that's occurring in many states. So I've actually sat in on some sessions with Queensland police recruits and uh, it's it's kind of fascinating from an outsider's perspective because basically what they're told is make eye contact with people, introduce yourself, tell them your name and ask what their name is and then use their name and find out things about them. It's kind of like, you know, social uh, chit-chat 101. It seems like a fairly obvious thing to do as an outsider, but apparently this is quite sort of new and radical when it comes to the way that police interact with, with people who are, I guess, allegedly committing crimes or creating public disturbance. Um, We've already seen the difference that this makes in Queensland and in other states, and you can only hope that some of these practices are going to be adopted more broadly and that we'll learn from cases like uh, Courtney Topics. Listener.